Undoubtedly, you've heard of Top Gun by now, and if you tuned in for our last episode, you heard me speak with a real Top Gun pilot. Now, while I love the conversation, I have to be honest and tell you that my introduction to naval aviation was actually through their inner branch rival, if you will, the Blue Angels. The year before Top Gun came out, then Lieutenant Pat Walsh was selected as a member of the Blues, officially called the Navy Flight Demonstration Squadron. Due to strong family ties, I still remember everybody loading up and driving to Pensacola, Florida to watch Pat and team perform at their annual show over Pensacola Beach. I'll never forget watching them fly so close to the water. I mean, it looked like they could just reach down and touch the ocean. What a cool experience. A week later, I remember seeing on the news that the Blues had a mid-air collision, killing one member of the team. Join me as I sit down with retired four-star Admiral Pat Walsh as we discuss both the beauties and the dangers of flying with the Blues, as well as a few other aspects of an unbelievably accomplished resume that is way too long to recite. From Carry the Load, these are lessons from the front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. Uh, last week I had somebody in here uh, who was a Top Gun pilot. I'm not mistaken, you're familiar with that. Um, uh, I could be, depends on who it was. <laughs> well, the gentleman we had in here uh, was uh, Jeff Fellows, uh, another Jesuit guy. Um, but he... Um, uh, also, like you, went to the academy. Um, you know, played uh, uh, he played lacrosse at, at Jesuit Zone. I think when we were growing up, I, don't, I, mm-hmm. I hadn't even heard of that yet, and I'm guessing you probably hadn't either. Um, but he ended up uh, going to Top Gun. And told us some really interesting stuff about that. But you you took it a step further, and were, were with the Blue Angels, which was I, I have a I have to give you a lot of credit for for inspiring me to join the military. Um, because I, I was exposed to that when I was in high school. How did you end up flying in the Blue Angels? Well, first of all, for all my Top Gun Bubba's out there, you're on the record now, on camera, as saying that the Blue Angels was a step further. So, <laughs> so I okay, can't wait a minute. Educate I can't wait to then. get back to Pensacola. <laughs> yeah, you're you're going to have to educate me. Is that uh, is Top Gun and and the Blue Angels are those seen as two different paths? They are. They're, they're two different paths. I mean, they involve excellence in, in aviation. Um, one is in, you know, the, the discrete set of responsibilities associated with combat maneuvering mm-hmm. and getting, as a, as a teacher, you know, proficient enough yourself to be able to teach others in the air in three-dimensional space, you know, what it takes in order to defeat another aircraft in flight. And that, that requires a lot of... of uh, mental acuity as well as physical acuity in mm-hmm. order to be able to, to, to stick with it. This is not something where you can take your eye off of things. You cannot relax. You have to be cold and calculating the entire uh, set of maneuvers it takes in order to get the job done. Uh, for us, uh, another level of concentration, but, but one, one real compliment to the team that most people don't see or realize is that when they look at the six, three of those are brand new, have never done it before. Interesting. So every year there's turnover on the team. And the highest compliment you can give somebody on the team is, hey, you know, that looks the same as last year. Uh, Knowing full well, that's about 150 flights in the desert. El Centro is where we do our winter training. Mm -hmm. And we start out groups of two that are typically uh, um, maybe 30 feet apart. The base altitude is 2,000 feet. 
So we'll say for purposes of looking at our instruments, 2,200 feet represents the deck. So we'll start maneuvers at 2,200 feet and finish maneuvers at 2,200 feet. If we make a mistake and we go lower than that, well, then, you know, we've, we critique ourselves. Every maneuver, every minute uh, in the air is filmed. And, and so the flight itself can be 45 minutes to an hour. The debrief can be three hours or longer. So it takes that kind of uh, chemistry on the team in order to make it work. And then typically uh, when we go to a show site on a Thursday, we circle, we arrive, we pick up uh, checkpoints, landmarks on the ground that tell us how far away from center point, which is the center of the show. So a mile, a mile and a half, two miles away tells us uh, when we're down in set at altitude and we're on the same speed, you know, whether or not we're going to pass in front of the crowd or way to the crowd left or to the crowd right. And so we'll work on the timing associated with that, um, as well as the closeness and the proximity of the maneuvers. After 150 flights, we're down to 150 feet. The diamonds work in 24 to 36 inches apart. And there's a lot of trust that comes with being on the team. So I've, I, I got to stop you there because I've actually had people tell me, oh, it just looks like they're that close. They're not really that close. 24, 36 would, uh, inches, you know, wingspan to, to canopy. or I would go um, based on the sound of the boss's engine. Okay. So when it reached a certain pitch, whatever that is, that's 24 inches today. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. So and you, so you, if he didn't, uh, so I'm pushing him with my airplane. Okay. So, so well, oh, so we got to back up. We so got to give everybody the are, are are pushing. Yeah. Okay. So, boss is number one. He's yeah. the he's the yeah. he's the lead guy. Yeah. And so if and I'm on I'm on the left wing my first year, and mm-hmm. then I'm in the slot for the next two years. Okay. And the slot is in. And so when you guys are flying in full formation, you've got one in the front. You've got two. Yeah. On got, on either side of him. Yeah. And then you've got three filling in the gaps in the wings in the third level. Yeah. Okay. So you were the left wing in in uh, in year one, and the slot is the guy that's got his nose between the second and the third aircraft. Okay, know, number two and number three. Number two and number three. Okay, okay. so he's right behind the boss. So I just want to kind of mentally yeah. set that up for everybody as you're talking about this. Yeah. So you're going off the boss's the the engine, the sound of the engine is what I heard you say. Yeah. So the first year was an A4, mm-hmm. and um, and if he didn't push back, I could I could get him to make a complete circle. That's how close we are. Really? Yeah. So call that 24 inches. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it's really important that, that two and three, the left wingman and the right wingman, are balanced because if if we have different distances, then then he's fighting one and not the other. In terms of that, I mean, that's how close we are. So did you ever at any point think to yourself, what in the hell am I doing up here? Good. I mean, you look, you look Uh, this way, you look that way, you look up and you've got, you've got all this metal and potential destruction surrounding you with one false move. Yeah. I'm not thinking of it as destruction. I'm thinking it's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I did see, you know, my family had a reaction, you know, when I got selected, but I ended up seeing my family more when I flew with the Blue Angels than when I lived at home. Um, <laughs> so, I, I remember those days. Yeah. Yeah. So they would, they would show up. Um, it was, I mean, it was, uh, it was a good time for our family. Term so, okay. So getting back to it though, how did you end up, how did you get selected for the Blue Angels? 
there's an application process that uh, starts with a minimum amount of flight hours. Mm -hmm. 1,500 hours was the minimum. What that equated to was about seven or eight years of flying. What that meant in reality is that we had made deployment or deployments at sea. And and the big um, differentiator for naval aviation is that time deployed at sea. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that no matter what, there's nowhere else to go. So whether the weather's good or the weather's bad, or there's been a casualty on the ship, or there's some mechanical problem, you know, with your own jet, um, you have to figure out a way to manage all that, get back to the ship and be able to go another day. So that sort of resilience in a deployed environment is really what uh, gives people their reputations. And um, assuming that you can deploy in that kind of environment then there's a certain chemistry of what it takes personality-wise in order to be able to be comfortable in that environment and work with the team. So as I described, you know, the debrief can be very, very long. Well, the debrief means that someone is looking at you, Todd, and going, okay, as we advance the film, you know, you're out of position here, you're out of position here, and, you know, this is, this is something we've been talking about for a long time, Todd. I don't know why you don't get this, but, you know, fix it. <laughs> You can get into those kind. I of- actually had those conversations <laughs> with my dad a lot growing up. So, anyway, the the debrief is where all the learning takes place, and and that's where we either come out stronger as a team, or we're falling apart. And in terms of just um, dynamics, a team that doesn't work well internally, it's only a matter of time before it plays out in front of a customer or in front of an audience. So I saw this in the business world. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. This, this same dynamic. I mean, um, but you know what we all, don't do in the business world is we don't debrief. Exactly. That was the point I was going to make. Yeah. So we, you know, we're quick to move on to the next, uh, deadline, milestone, financial target, whatever it is. And yet we don't really understand like why we failed or, or we superficially sort of gloss over it and then, because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and or or we don't want to really have complete responsibility accountability and authority we only want that when it's you know when it's convenient but when we come up short to understand why we came up short to learn from it and move on i mean part of it is incentives so so where are the incentives in the business community to be able to do that because oftentimes what you've done is you've exposed a vulnerability or a weakness in the organization and the temptation instead is that with that acknowledgement is to move that person along to someplace else. So, you know, if I were to break your, your flights up um, or your time in the blue angels. So let's just talk about, you know, the, the, the show day. If you will. Um, and I don't know if, if that's what y'all called it, but that's what we'll call it for lack of a better term. You've got, the time up to the to the actual show, you've got the show itself, and then you've got the debrief. And I, I would be willing to bet that if you polled a lot of people that didn't know anything about it and you said, what's the most important aspect if you break it up into those three groups? Most people are going to say the preparation mm. because that, everyone feels that that's where you're, you know, you're going to make the most money, so to speak. I'm guessing you would probably say the debrief is the most important part because yeah. that's where you're going to learn. Because the that's most. that's where you 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 can watch a chain of events starting to take place. It starts in the debrief, and and the role of um, safety, 
is uh, it, to be able to recognize we're getting complacent. So we're, we're compromising things that we shouldn't be compromising. And, uh, you know, the good news about aviation is, you know, it's, it's just hard facts. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's the ground. Um, it's, you know, bumping airplanes. It's um, control of airspeed. I mean, it's, there's all kinds of different sort of mechanical pieces that contribute to an overall picture of whether or not this is a healthy organization. Same thing applies in business. So this critically important feature of team dynamics is woefully missing in the business community. And, and yet, their employees are hungry for it. You know, they don't want to fail. They don't want to see their company fail. And they can see where the issues are. And yet, um, oftentimes, they don't feel like they have a voice. Or if they have a voice, they're not listened to. So you, you, you use the term uh, bumping airplanes. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring that up. You were involved, not you personally, but when you were on the blues. Mm-hmm. Um, y'all had an accident like that. Um, you mentioned that in the debriefs, and I don't know if you're referencing this or not, but you talked about how you're getting complacent. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of tell everybody how that may have, how did that whole thing happen? And was it ever addressed in the, in the debrief um, in such a way where it could have been avoided or should have been avoided? Yeah. And, and I understand that you can't necessarily disclose everything, but. Well, the, um, the maneuver is called the blivet. So the uh, number five and six jet uh, pass each other at low altitude and then roll inverted, push for an outside half cube and eight, and then uh, meet in the middle. There's smoke on the airplane. It actually inscribes the image of a, of a heart. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the Niagara Falls mishap in 1985, which is around July or so time frame, um, the, the contract that we have with, with who is going to be straight and level and who is going to put the lateral distance, that contract was violated. So the five jet was the jet that sort of sets the maneuver, we would say. In other words, I'm going to be very predictable. I've got a certain airspeed, and I'm not going to move my wings, and I'm not going to react to you, and I'm going to let you get as close as you feel comfortable with me. So, so the six jet hit the five jet, clipped it, um, ended up in the loss of the number six pilot, and uh, the number five pilot lost his aircraft but was able to eject safely and, and recovered on the ground. So the question about the debrief, yes, this is, this is really where, you know, my, um, my experience has been um, watching the two of these, uh, these two pilots work together. And, and yet, over time, um, you know, the conversation is one where uh, one pilot is encouraging another pilot to, um, you know, to work closer to them. And, and I just don't think there was uh, um, enough time and thought that went into changing someone's mindset that was comfortable doing a maneuver that, you know, John and Martha couldn't tell how far apart the airplanes were to a, to a point where um, we were compromising and not even recognizing it. We, you know, there's an element of complacency that, that creeps in. No one, 
no one starts the day feeling complacent. You can see it in the way we drive sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just getting really comfortable with cars moving really fast uh, and being really close to us. That's a great point. Um, and yet, you don't, even, you don't even know who's next door. You don't know who's in the other car. Uh, you make a lot of assumptions at night on a two-lane road. And you see a couple of headlights coming your way. You assume they're going to stay on their side of the road. Uh, sometimes people get surprised, and there's no, there's no second chances with an accident like that. That's a great analogy. I hadn't so that's, thought of it. that's really where this is. I couldn't tell you what was in the mind of the six pilot other than I had been around during the debriefs where you know there was, there was this strong commitment to being as professional as we could, to do the best that we could. And we, we stepped into an area where we got really complacent without um, recognizing the margin that we were, the, the reaction time margin that we were cutting into. So what, what was the aftermath of that for you personally? How did that, how did that change you? How did that, how does that stay with you to this day yeah. and how does it manifest itself? Uh, far more proactive when it comes to how we message the people who work for us, uh, far more mindful to, um, uh, to recognize where people are comfortable. And I'm talking about, you know, this is high performance sort of comfortable. Mm-hmm. So getting people comfortable in a dynamic high performance environment, um, and then, and then helping them get to the, ne- the next level of proficiency that requires, that requires, um, finding the way, uh, the right sort of way and language to sometimes have to repeat a message over and over, but to do it in a way that that helps guide them rather than push them. So when when people aren't comfortable with something, uh, they'll have a way of of uh, expressing it, whether with verbal or nonverbal cues, and and you can just tell. You know, as a leader, if you're connected to the audience, you have an uh, an understanding, and to and to pull on that um, in in an environment where it's safe for them to express where they have reservations, that's, that's a, it's hugely important. And, and it's something where, um, the real value of what we do is that we can do it over and over and over again. But when we compromise and when we're complacent, then we lose that ability to be resilient because we'll, we'll lose people, we'll lose aircraft and, you know, everything. I want to kind of translate a little or transition a little bit to, okay, you had, you had no combat experience up until the point that you were in the uh, the blues. You leave the, the Blue Angels, and now you find yourself in a combat scenario, mm-hmm. and that would be Desert Storm. How did that translate for you? Did it mm-hmm. translate for you? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a critique that the blues, you know, are entertainment, and and that's that's all true. Uh, but there's a lot of advantages to having been on the team and, and then be able to, um, to bring all that experience to the fleet. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, working in, in tough weather conditions, working in, in combat scenarios. I mean, there's, a, there's an exactness about the way that we prepare for flight, especially in combat. Uh, in our training, we try and, and replicate a combat environment so that it's not that much of a transition. Mm-hmm. The ground underneath us changes, but 
essentially the way we go about it, the way we prepare, and and the way we'll we'll pull together a gaggle of airplanes, um, pretty much the same. So you know, to be a combat strike leader in Desert Storm, to me that was kind of the epitome of what all of this is about. Um, so going from the team to uh, to combat ops was I was really grateful for that because that's that's the whole purpose of why we had an, had naval aviation. Um, we had you know we had some uh, we had some tough days. We lost people while we were over there. Um, I had uh, a particular mission where uh, you know prior to the blues I had served uh, at VX five, which is operational test and evaluation out at China Lake. So it was weapons testing. One of the weapons that I was testing was a weapon I was going to use um, while I was uh, while I was in Desert Storm, and and ultimately because I had that set of experiences, I could manage the use of that weapon for the air wing, uh, just because I had a different level of experience and different number of opportunities to work with both the strengths as well as the weaknesses associated with this um, electro optic guided weapon. So on one particular mission, um, we were going after a um, oil refinery and trying to do it in a way that wasn't going to create an environmental catastrophe. So, so we had some very um, precise points that we were going after. I was going after um, the control building and, um, and then maneuvered the weapon inside the window of the control building so that the controls would not be useful but all the piping and all the plumbing was was going to be available. Um, that you, turned you mean out it was going to be available after the strike. After the strike, yeah. In other words, keeping that just doesn't even seem likely. Yeah, storage. In other words, we everything was held in storage. Right. But uh, in the ability to open storage and close storage, couldn't do that because the control control valves were all shot. Interesting. Yeah, and. And I was able to verify that when I came back later. That was going to be my follow-up. Because my, my job in 91 was to destroy it, and my job in 2005 was to rebuild it. So Okay, hold so on. When, we, so we, when, the, so okay. when the second, uh, but because of my experience with this weapon system, we, we, were, uh, we used some redundant loading. Okay. Okay. Um, and so that worked. And then I got a, got a call on a covered net to, uh, to go chase a SAM. On a covered net, tell everybody. Yeah, so that's an encrypted radio communication that said, hey, there's an active surface-to-air missile site. So I dueled a SAM and went right down the snot locker at this guy. And, uh, you know, he'd taken out a couple of coalition airplanes, so so we had a a little beef with it. And um, I was able to launch this walleye and take out the Fansong radar, which is the, the radar that controls all the missiles. So rather than knocking out one missile knock out the command the and control to, yeah. and, uh, and then you've knocked out the whole site. So it was a good day at work. So <laughs> it was a good day at work, but did, did, did you ever, did you ever stop and think about, cause I think one of the big differences between pilots and those on the ground, those on the ground, it's, it's, your heart rate is up differently. It's more emotional. I mean, somebody is directly firing at you. Yeah. Um, and so it, it literally in a situation like that is kill or be killed. It's a little bit different mindset for you, although you did reference, um, well, remember, I mean, 
we're getting shot at. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you, you did I mean, reference. It, this is not some playground. Service air missiles were flying. Right. Well, I got an SA-3 over here. I'm going after an SA-2. And all the zoos, you know, these are all the ZSU, you know, AAA, which is coming up. Um, and it looks like rope, especially at night, you know, okay. when it's coming up. Um, so so it's, a, it's a threat environment. And, you know, they'd love to bag an airplane. So I, I guess where I would, of course, and, and that's a, I mean, you, you can so see that. the difference. Here's the difference. Okay. okay. All right. All right. So when you disengage and, and when you're, you're back, mm-hmm. you guys, you guys, what, what do you do? You go like in a tent, you go eat or something. I got to go back to ship and I got to get aboard the ship. I can't get to my peanut butter and jelly sandwich until I fly aboard the ship and talk about heart rate. I mean, <laughs> you know, you can, you can hear it from the Vietnam vets. You know, I mean, it was going downtown Hanoi, you know, that was, that was tough, but going back to the ship, it's like, oh my God, now I got to go do this. And you're talking about landing on the aircraft carrier. Yeah. And we look for bad weather to go fly into. I mean, that's just the way it, that's just the way it is. <laughs> that was certainly the belief. <laughs> yeah, it feels that way. So I, I guess what I was, what I was really driving at though, is the, the, you know, you, you talk to guys who have been in a firefight yeah. and they talk about the heart rate being up and it's it, that fear of the unknown for them sometimes creeps in, but they're reacting so much to their training. Yeah. Do you guys have the same level of training in the air that allows you to get that heart rate up to just be in a react to my training mode? Yeah. Especially in a combat situation. So we'll, we intentionally try and set up training so it does mm-hmm. just what you're describing. So whether we're at Fallon or we're on some other instrumented range where where everybody can see, you know, on the mm-hmm. ground control, can see uh, where the blue fighters are, where the red fighters are, and then have the surface-to-air activity that, that can also bring more realism in it. And then, you know, have a real mission where you got to get ordnance on target or work in a contested environment. I mean, this is, all of that is intended to create the environment and training that you're talking about. So you talked about uh, the fact that y'all, y'all did lose a couple of, of pilots in, in that engagement. Yeah. Uh, any of them that you knew personally? Yeah. Yeah, all of them, actually. So one in an A6 that was down low and hit by a shoulder fire at SAM, uh, he was providing uh, close air support. There was a, um, I think there was a um, C-130 that had gone down. There was a big aircraft that had gone down, and, and we were, you know, sending people in to, to try and help with, uh, you know, a uh, combat SAR, combat search and rescue right. extraction. And then um, um, uh, the guy who I flew with on this same flight the next night he died um he he was coming out of country and at at thirty three thousand feet and then ended up hitting the water at mock so we think he had a hypoxic event it was really hard for his family real hard for us a hypoxic event yeah so we're we're on oxygen um when we're at altitude and uh typically the cabin pressure is um, is um, up to about 8,000 feet or so is ambient. So when you're in an airliner, you don't even think twice about it because uh, 
you know, you always have this feeling and circulation in the in the cabin of um, of being on the ground. For us in, in military aircraft, that that uh, gradient changes at eight thousand feet, so that um, our our cockpits are are typically pressurized, but um, we always have oxygen in. In this case, we think that there was a um, a problem with the seal, and um, and he was losing pressurization, which means that um, effectively his body was at thirty three thousand feet. Mm. So when you think about breathing in air from thirty three thousand feet, you know the the whole chemistry is different, and the impact it has, um, it it's much um, um, what we go through, and you'll see sometimes uh, on video. Uh, cabin pressurization drills among military pilots where they'll take off their masks and they'll breathe in air at, you know, 30,000 feet or so. And, and they go through hypoxia and, and that's a lack of oxygen to the brain. And they typically lose judgment and then pass out uh, and regain consciousness when they, when actual airflow is restored. And this particular case, it wasn't enough time. I think he fell over and, uh, you know, chest hit the stick and then, and then hit the water at mock. Hmm. Yeah. You said that was particularly hard on his family. Yeah. Sounds well, like we more knew so the family, than... a young daughter, um, young wife and, uh, father had been a combat pilot and just had a hard time accepting that he lost his son in an operational loss rather than a combat loss. I mean, it's, you know, for, for families in that kind of situation, they'll always be asking, always be probing, are you sure, you know, there wasn't enemy activity? Um, Scott Spiker had been shot down in that same sort of time frame. And people were wondering, you know, what really happened to him. No one would actually acknowledge that we had lost a fighter to another fighter, to an Iraqi fighter at that time. So they thought it was a surface-to-air missile. There was some sort of explanation they they wanted to believe that it was something right. more. Nobody could have shot down a U.S. fighter. Was you know what what people were thinking? They weren't saying it that way, but that's what they were thinking. So that was kind of the beginning of you know you you referenced what you what you destroyed in ninety one. Yeah, you were able to go back and rebuild in 05. So in between there, there was a. Um, you and I were both actually stationed in Washington, D.C. on 9-11. Um, if I remember correctly, you were at the Navy Annex. I was. I was underneath the flight path of American 77. Do you, uh, do you recall that, that day pretty clearly? Very clear. You know, bright day. Um, I am monitoring a call for the chief of naval personnel. I'm his executive assistant. His office is overlooking the Pentagon, which is actually the point of impact. And, um, and we hear the jet come over, um, the, uh, the eyewitnesses say the, the wings cleared our building by about 40 feet and, uh, people who are 40 feet, 40 feet. And the people who were on smoke break downstairs in the parking lot looked up and could see faces of passengers, heard the engines come up adding power. And a one potato, two potato, boom. Um, and, you know, a couple of long seconds later, then alarms started going off. Uh, made a, used the ground line to call home 
tell my wife I'm okay. She didn't know what I was talking about, had to hang up. And at that point, we were evacuating. We go out uh, to Arlington National Cemetery because people were afraid of being in buildings at that point. Uh, while we're standing around the, c- the cemetery trying to understand what just happened, um, we hear another boom. It turns out to be a sonic boom as an F-16 is now racing uh, to get to Flight 77, which you know they, they couldn't get to in time. Um, but that comes across as a car bomb. People thought, oh, there's a car bomb. It's over at State Department. I mean, there were, people were, were pretty beside themselves in terms of trying to understand what was going on. Uh, incredible day. It was, we, we had a, a guest on at one point who was actually in the building, same side that you were referencing. Um, Danny Plumley. Yeah. Yeah. And and I believe I believe you know him or yeah. um he described it as you know, what he took away from that whole thing was the best of humanity and the worst of humanity, not just wrapped in one day, but really wrapped in one event. Mm-hmm. And um I don't know if you've if you've ever really talked to him about his story. No. But when I when I hear him tell his story, you tell your story, I've got my story. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it's one of the most, I mean, that was our Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And, you know, we were all right there. Um, you know, and Danny was obviously a lot closer than, than any of us, but, um, does that, does that still stick with you? It, it does. Um, you know, there's, um, as you unpack it, there's a range of emotions to begin with. How did we not know? Because when you look at, the the steps that it took in order to bring something that size out of altitude and then line up with Columbia Pike to hit the building. Um, that is a, that's a four or five minute turn in order to descend and get all 270 degrees around in order to be able to hit the building. And that's, that can make the difference between life and death. So the impact point hits the, uh, the Desper. So that's the deputy chief of staff for personnel for the Army, Tim Maud's office, three-star, who is the counterpart to Nora Bryan, who I was working for, who is the chief of naval personnel. So it's my counterpart's office. Uh, his EA is running around uh, trying to get people into a meeting. They're late for the meeting because everybody's watching the World Trade Center. Tim Maud and the rest of the group are ready to start the meeting. EA uh, is not there at impact. Everybody in that room dies. Um, And the EA ends up outside the building clawing his way back in because he had this really strong sense of loyalty to, you know, his team and to his boss. One of the things that sticks with me, and it's in the category of best in humanity and worst of humanity, is, um, is the weeks that follow. The weeks that follow Operation Phoenix is to bring the Pentagon back in 12 months. And it is incredible to watch the level of activity because, you know, we would go in to work at, you know, 545, 6 o'clock, and they were working round the clock. I saw, I saw workers, contract workers, running to the site to get to work. I mean, 
it's one of those things where uh, that stays with me as well. Running. Running. With their lunch pails and their heavy jackets because the weather's miserable. And and they're they're going to work. They're going to repair the building. And sure enough, 12 months later, you know, it's back. Just goes to show you what we can do when we set our mind to it. Absolutely. So as your career progresses, you keep showing up for work every day. Weird. And uh, you keep getting promoted. And uh, next thing you know, you are the vice CNO. And so explain to people what that is to be the vice CNO of the Navy. So that's the number two person in uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, the the position sits inside the authorities of organized, train, and equip. So each service has Title Ten authorities, and the vice chief of the services were all kind of the same. Is really responsible for uh, representing to Congress the overall health and welfare of the service. In other words, make the case for the budget, and then uh, explain the overall readiness of it. And during that period of time, there's a growing awareness that we have a real issue with mental health. And and so uh, part of the testimony that I made was on uh, suicide and suicide rates. Um, it, was, um, it was problematic for the Navy. It was really problematic for some of the other services. So typically... For the Navy, we were finding um, statistically a couple of groups that were most vulnerable, and the two major issues were either relationships or um, punishment-related issues. When you say punishment-related issues, you're talking about someone who um, was kind of in the category you referenced earlier, where they're they're in they're, trouble. They're in trouble. Yeah, and and so think about it. So this is. Um, 39% of the suicides that we would see annually would be traced back to either someone that's having problems with a relationship or someone that's in trouble. 39%? Uh, 39, uh, 39% on the people in trouble, um, 60% were relationships. So for that 39%, what that really means is, think about the way we would deal with guys that got themselves into trouble tend to marginalize them. We don't tend to put our arm around them and go, you know, we're going to work through this. We culturally um, needed to look at this differently than what we had in the past for people that were um, either the subject of an investigation or people that were about to be punished because increasingly this group of people were taking their own lives rather than to go through whatever it was the process was taking them through. It, it kind of defies the the machismo though of the military. It does. It, it's very different. I I wouldn't have known to even say that had I not been digging in looking for answers because we were really perplexed that that this was the final solution that people would take their own lives. Yeah, and that's and I've 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 made that reference before, and and again the book that I referenced earlier. Um. I just, I never understood that. It, it just, it never even occurred to me, you know, that that could be yeah. an issue. Um, but I've, I've come, you know, through the year, well, over the last few years, I've really come to understand how, how naive I was to it. Um, what, what was it about? I mean, you're looking at this data and you're saying, oh my gosh, all these people, you know, 39% are 
you know, involved. Or, NJP, or, uh, yeah, you know, something so, like Some that. kind of non-judicial punishment or, and then the others, the relationship part, I can understand a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but, but there's, there's, okay. So more context to it, uh, to the numbers. Um, we didn't have a problem with folks on deployment. We had a problem when people came back from deployment. They didn't have something to keep them busy. Um, or someone to look out for them. In other words, the checks and balances that are in place for the deployment model are actually pretty good. And I don't discover all this until at the same period of time we're dealing with a number of individual augmentees. So the stress that Iraqi freedom and enduring freedom are placing on the all-volunteer force is that is that we're now gone through so many rotations of um, ground forces that the only alternative is to activate the guard and the reserve. That requires a presidential order. That was done once, and there was no political appetite to do it again. So, so we had to augment, augment the uh, ground forces, and we would use sailors and airmen to do that. So you were talking about you know the ground environment where people you know had that that heartbeat that was you know beating so rapidly because they were face to face with the enemy. This was a different animal. This was IEDs. So this is the fear of the unknown that that people would have. I mean, it got to the point where um, folks were having real issues in convoy duty. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I did as the vice chief is um, is I. I realized what had happened as I as I go to deliver retirement remarks, and a family friend who's retiring as a Navy commander tells the audience that in a forty-eight hour period he went from uh, being mortared to being home, and it was like, oh my word! And in addition to that, he he referred himself to Bethesda to get help and couldn't get through the system. I mean, this was the early days where we didn't really understand mental health the way we understand it today. So he'd get caught, you know, on hold or, or voicemail or something. But, you know, here's a guy that's saying, Hey, I know things aren't right with me and I need to get some attention. And, and he's trying to get it and he can't get it. So one of the things I would do was, uh, was to go to, um, when I visited installations, I wanted all the I, uh, the individual augmentees, IAs, in one spot. I just, I want to see them, I want to talk to them, I want to find out how they're doing. And typically, in large organizations, there'd be 25, 30, 40, which is a pretty big number. Sure. And what kind of assumptions do we make about sailors doing that? Uh, the assumptions are that that they'll come forward if they're having a problem, they'll let us know. In the meantime... Which couldn't be further from the truth. Absolutely. In the meantime, um, they, you know, they, they're just sort of ejected from their organization. They go serve for 12 months, and they parachute back in. And if they don't say anything, then everybody assumes, just kind of get back to normal. And, and so that's the root issue of, of how we started understanding, oh, we got a real problem here that we need to deal with. So do do you think the problems we're dealing with there and that have come to light in that regard, is that a new problem or we're just now aware of it? Because of our deployment model, we had never experienced that before. As I was saying, the suicide issues that we ran into were not people who were deployed. 
it was a group of people that were nine months, ten months back from deployment, where they're living in an environment where there's shades of gray. In a but, we, com- but we face those same problems historically. Um, and I'm, I'm pressing you a little bit on this because, you know, I've, I know of family who took their own lives after World War II, after Vietnam. Um, certainly World War I, there was a lot of shell shock that, that translated to that. Mm-hmm. It sounds, what, what I'm hearing you say is that it sounds like that problem really snowballed because of our deployment. It's not that it wasn't always there. It's just the way we deployed, we were so busy over the last 20 years, it just snowballed in a way it never had before. Or we became aware of it. I mean, statistically, it would be interesting to compare numbers of what we know for mental health now versus in the, in the wars that you described. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It would, it would make sense that it's been a problem all along. It would mm-hmm. make sense that uh, people took their lives, but we didn't know it. It was described in other terms, or right. it was statistically um, set aside so that we didn't have the complete story. In the technology world we live today, everybody's got a camera, and everybody sort of knows what's going on, sort of. I mean, it, so I, I have a lot of faith in the data that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't tell you about you know, what we had before. But it was, uh, it was certainly clear that Congress wanted to be involved in any kind of solution, and, and they were anxious to have a program that they could put money against, but it just wasn't that kind of problem to solve. Uh, it, it wasn't one of those things that, that, you know, there were easy solutions. There were mental health solutions that required investment in mental health resources, which is a far more longer-term kind of investment sure. than, than just having a slide deck and a, and a budget and assuming that was going to work. I mean, it's like that transition program coming out of the service. You know, it's. Oh yeah, that that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's there. It's there, and it checks a in, box in name only. But it does not prepare people yeah. for what they're about to embark on. Yeah, because I don't know if you can be prepared for that. I think it's kind of like it's almost like trying to prepare somebody going into boot camp. Or so there's a lot of truth to that. And my suggestion would be to to have all that six months after you get out, rather than six hours before you leave. I would agree and, with that I would agree because, because you don't know what you don't know yet. Well, you would know what questions to ask. Right. And, and then you could absorb what resources are out there and have a better idea of kind of what to do with your questions and where to go. But then that relies at that point, you know, for the civilian world to be in sync with the, you know. Yeah, and it's not. And it's not. Yeah. Well, I have one more question to ask you to wrap this up. Uh, obviously, one of the the most important things that, that we do as an organization um, carry the load is about restoring the true meaning of Memorial day and doing Memorial day better. And the best way that we can do that is by remembering those who made the ultimate sacrifice, mm-hmm. um, which means with the uniform on, is there anyone that, uh, that you still carry? Regularly? Well, Mike Rashawn. So Mike Rashawn's story actually sadly continues. So he, 
parishes. And Mike Gershon was, in was the pilot. In 1986, uh, Blue Angel number six. And, and he had a five-week-old son, Mike Jr. Mike Jr. passes away at the age of 15 or 16 or so, Thanksgiving Day weekend. And so his mother, Sherry, um, now lives um, outside of uh, northwest Florida on a farm somewhere taking care of uh, rescue animals. But, um, you know, it's a sign of the ripple effect that that people have in the lives of others that you're not even thinking about or aware of. Um, B.J. Dwyer uh, was the pilot that we lost in Desert Storm. So he was he was on my wing when we went after the SA-2 site. He died the next night. Um, and, and he had a young daughter as well, who's now a law school graduate. And there's... Unfortunately, many more. Well, I appreciate you sharing those with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, Admiral Walsh. Yeah. You're Admiral what I Walsh. Used to, what I used to be. But you're still, <laughs> you're still an admiral, and you're still, but you'll always be Pat. Sounds like tenure. Yeah. It does. There's some tenure there. <laughs> Thank you. I, I really do appreciate you making the time. And, and as always, I'm, uh, I always walk away from a conversation with you learning something new, and, and I appreciate that. But... I think more than anything, as I referenced earlier, you know, the humility with which you approach everything. No, thanks. Um, one of the reasons why humility to me is the most important thing that I look for in anybody that I do business with. And uh, I have you to thank for that to a large degree. Thank you. Thanks for what you're doing, Todd. You bet. Thanks. Thanks.